0: I just wanted to open up with a thought though is before we dive into our passage this morning. And that's this, this, this idea that we as humans naturally express delight. We express our delight. In, in the Keat family household, the most common word used is probably the word no. All right, so we've got two young boys, five and three, and, and, and I'm sure that if you're in this room right now and you're a young family, that you would agree with Melinda and I, that no is probably, unfortunately, the most commonly used word. However, the most commonly used phrase in the Keat house would be the words, I love you. And it's a very, it's a very versatile statement, you know? It's, it's a, a statement that, that obviously we use as a term of endearment, and then there are other moments, right? Where I can think of, uh, you know, they just encapsulate almost every conversation and interaction between my wife, myself, our boys. For instance, when I'm being goofy and I make Melinda laugh, and usually at the end of a very long sigh, she'll say, "I love you," right? Or, or, or it'll be something more like, you know, the words she says after I've forgotten for the fifth time that she's made plans for the weekend. It's a very versatile statement i said that it's very versatile it's the statement that usually gets used when we try to call each other on the phone and of course we have the two boys which means as soon as we call it's like is that daddy oh let me talk to him you know and and so before you know we've forgotten the reason we called in the first place and so almost every phone conversation ends with i love you boys i love you dear and then we go about our day until we remember it later you know it's versatile it's also the phrase that i use to kind of distract and annoy my boys while they're maybe playing on their leapfrog or their leap pad and, and maybe watching Wild Kratts and I'll like poke them. Do I have any other dads in the room right here that one of your spiritual gifts is to annoy your children? There, we, are, we got some, we got some. That's what I wanna see, all right? So I'll like poke them and I'll poke them to see if I can distract them and I'll be like, I love you, buddy, and they're like, and they go back to like doing whatever they're doing. And they're only five and three, so you can tell we're just getting started. You know, it, it's one of those moments, and, and, and so it, it's so versatile, but it, the reason I think of that phrase in relation to expressing our delight or the delight in my family is, is I was laying on my son Ronan's floor, in his room a few weeks ago, and he was building blocks, and he had asked me to come build blocks with him, which really means I can't touch the blocks because he's a very specific way of doing them. And so I was just sitting there, or rather laying there on the floor, and just randomly, without taking his eyes off of his blocks, he says, Daddy, I love you. And yeah, it was, it was, it was sweet in the moment, but I just couldn't help but think that he was just delighted and content that I was present. And so we express our delight. And so like I said, obviously, obviously the phrase is most commonly used in my house as a point of endearment to Melinda or myself when we we do something that elicits, you know, delight in the other. But we as humans are hardwired to express delight. One of my favorite quotes is from John Piper, and it's where he says, it's not joy, unless it's expressed. It's why we just have to tell someone about, about what, that, that promotion we got. It's why we have to tell them about that deer or that movie or that artist, or, or, or you know, we, have to, we just have to show them that picture that our kid made with the same face that they've made in a thousand other pictures, right? And we all know those people, we know those moms, we've totally muted them on social media, okay? But, but still, the reason that happens is because we express our delight. And this morning I wanna drop this thought in your mind that delight is the fuel of our worship. Delight is the fuel of our worship. This summer we will be going through the book of Psalms and Psalms is all about worship. You'll find it in the middle of your Bible and there's, there's well over a 100 psalms in scripture and it's all about worship. And worship is the expression of our delight in Christ and the exaltation and praise of God for who he is. The book of Psalms is a collection of songs and poems meant to celebrate and instruct. And the reason I say the word celebrate is because as poems and songs, they're meant to stir up our emotions. They're meant to, to, to well up our affections. And that's why there's, there's almost a Psalm for every human emotion experienced in life. And so the book is very versatile. You can open it at almost any moment in your life and find a passage that, that, that shares exactly how you feel in that moment. But what I love most about the book of Psalms is it never leaves you there. Instead, it's meant to instruct us on how to relate to God and how to worship and pray to him. Regardless of our circumstances. That means that Psalms targets both the heart and the mind. Both the emotions and our thinking. And we're going to see that in our psalm today. Go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 16. That'll be the psalm that that we will be looking at this morning. And and Pastor Sam has already joked with me as I open up this whole series for the summer on psalms that I'm not starting in Psalm 1. And uh, that's because if I'm going to get one sermon to preach from the book of Psalms, it's going to be my favorite sermon. I'll leave Psalm 1 to Pastor Chuck if he so chooses to preach it. But instead, today, I really believe that Psalm 16 serves as the quintessential psalm. It's going to have all of the elements of the book of Psalms wrapped into 11 verses. And what we're going to explore today are the essential elements of worship. And so, as you turn there, I I, I want to give you some background. Just, Just know that the book of Psalms is inspired and reliable. If there would be one um, fact that I could offer you this morning, it would be that we can trust the book of Psalms. It's not just some poems that a couple of men or, or women wrote down in scripture. Psalms is inspired by God. All throughout Jesus's ministry, while walking this earth, he would refer to the book of Psalms as scripture. You can find one of those situations in Matthew 21, verse 42. But when Jesus would teach on the Psalms, he would also explain that David wrote down while he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark 12, verse 36. And so the book of Psalms, every single one of these poems are inspired of God. David might've been writing from all of the human emotions from whatever moment he was in. And he might've been you know, speaking out you know, praise to God and prayers to God. And yet at the same time, he wrote as the Holy Spirit inspired him to use words that would elicit an emotional response that would engage our mind and that would mean something for us today. The book of Psalms would have been the the, the first hymnal of the early church. It would have been the most common scriptures in all the synagogues throughout the world. And it was certainly the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament by the disciples. They would preach sermons from this thing. And so needless to say, Psalms is pretty important, right? And so we're going to dive into Psalm 16, and I want you guys to kind of see how all of this plays out as we we think through this concept that delight is the fuel of our worship. So let's take a deeper look at the essential elements of worship in Psalm 16. The first element is found in verse 1, and it's simply this, prayer. And before you go getting crazy on me, yes, we all know that prayer should be an essential element of worship, but I want you to see the kind of prayer. Look in verse 1. David writes, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me, oh God. When we encounter David's opening sentence, it is a prayer that is raw and real. That's the kind of prayer I'm talking about when I say that prayer is an essential element of our worship. Prayers that are raw and real. As with so many of the Psalms in this Bible, David opens them from a place of honesty. We don't know what he's going through in this moment. He doesn't talk about it in this Psalm. But we know his opening moment, the first thing he says to God is this emotional heart cry, preserve me, God, help me, help me. And I love the fact that he is honest and upfront as if talking to God like he's a close friend. And we all have friends like that. These are the people that when something happens in our life, whether it's it's terrible or it's exciting, these are the people we can't wait, We, we call immediately because we have to express, maybe it's our delight or maybe it's our difficulty. And so we each have at least one person who who we call, that we trust, that we can be honest with, 100%. But surrounded by political enemies on all sides, David's one friend that he can be 100% honest with is God. And my only question is, does our relationship with God look like that? Do our prayers look like this? honest, raw emotion. See, David feels close enough to God to be honest with him. And that means that, that what I mean by the book of Psalms just meeting us where we are, no matter where you open it, you're going to find that David and the other writers most likely wrote from the emotion you're feeling today. When you get that new grandbaby, when you're in the midst of your depression, The Psalms meet us where we are, and so our prayer can be honest. Do you realize that as David is demonstrating in verse one, that he, as a believer, can be honest with God? Do you realize you can be honest with God? God's not afraid of your emotions. He's big enough to handle your doubts, your anxieties. He can deal with your anger. And he can celebrate with you your excitement and your joy. We can be honest with God because that's what prayer really is. It's where David starts and it's why it's the first essential element of worship. Prayer that is raw and real. In Luke chapter 18 and in chapter 20, Jesus actually condemns the Pharisees for their prideful, long, and pretentious prayers. Yet he would encourage the honest and humble cries of the heart. And so when we pray, we don't have to act like we have it all together. It's not like when we come into church on a Sunday morning, we don't have to wear the mask that everything's going great and we're fine. God wants to cut through the smoke and he just wants to to hear from your heart. He wants to engage you and meet you where you are. And so we can be honest with God. Part of the purpose of the book of Psalms is to instruct us how to pray. And that's why it's so important to see how David opens up this prayer. After all, God designed our emotions, didn't he? Yeah, he he's not afraid of them. Throughout the Psalms, including this one, what we're gonna see though is that yes, God, he meets us where we are. And he engages our heart but he engages our mind as well. See, God speaks truth into our life. And what we're gonna watch happen right here is we're gonna see where David begins in verse one and we're gonna see where where worship takes him by verse eight. But before we get there, I wanna leave you with a, a, a quote from Pastor Chuck. Pastor Chuck once said, you can't feel your way into a new way of thinking. You have to think your way into a new way of feeling." And we're gonna see it happen in Psalm 16. David starts at this low point emotionally. Preserve me, O God, help me. I need you, God. But he doesn't stay there. Despite whatever situation he's facing, he begins to praise God for who he is, and praise would be the second essential element of worship. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. If I was to define praise, it would be the exaltation of who God is and what he's provided. It's the exaltation of God and who he is. David begins to praise God despite his circumstances. And he does so with that first line. Where he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. He praises God because God is sovereign. Right after this emotional cry, he says, you are in control, God. You are my Lord. And I think he starts there because it's important for him with whatever he's facing And we should emulate that praise. Notice here again the familiarity between David and God though. If you notice in in our our English Bibles in verse two, the first time you see the word LORD, it's in all caps. And that's that's a a device that we use to signify where the divine personal name of God was used. But see the Hebrews and the writers, they, they wouldn't write down God's personal name out of respect or honor. And so what we see here is is David has this sense of familiarity that he calls on Yahweh, you are my Adonai. He he calls on Yahweh, you are my Lord and my God. He knows him by name and he speaks to him by name. David praises God's sovereignty, notice this, to calm his soul, where he is emotionally in verse 1. And he praises God because you are my Lord, and it calms his soul. Did you catch that? Exalting God for his sovereignty reminds us of a very important fact, that he is God and you are not. Praising God for his sovereignty has this effect that regardless of what we are going through, we can recognize that ultimately God is in control and he has not been taken by surprise. All throughout this book, David will use God's sovereignty in praising God's sovereignty to fight his depression, his uncertainty, his fear. And this truth has, has affected me more than almost any other truth in scripture as I have faced sudden job changes, Health crises, difficult decisions, and my own depression. The fact that God is in control regardless of what I experience, and it takes a matter of faith and trust. See, God's sovereignty means that He has plans for you, and He will see them through to completion. He promises that in Philippians 1 6. God's sovereignty means that, that he is actively at work redeeming everything that we walk through, working it out for our good, for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. I promise he makes every believer in Romans eight twenty eight. And And this, this kind of praise begins to calm his heart as he focuses on who God is. Look back in verse 2. David says, you are my Lord, but he goes on to say, I have no good apart from you. And in verse 5, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion. He is my cup. You hold my lot. And so he praises God for his sovereignty, and he praises God because God is the greatest treasure in life. I have no good apart from you, he says. With that statement, David is making a statement of comparison. He is recognizing that yes, God is good, but that every other good thing in David's life comes from God's provision. And so he praises God as his treasure. This is reflected in James chapter one, where James writes very similarly, that every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is good and he does good things. And guess what? He will never change. He remains good, he remains faithful, even when we are not. And so David reminds himself that God is good and he is the greatest good in his life. And this is how he answers his own situation. Are you following me? He starts here, preserve me, O oh God, and then he begins to praise God for His sovereignty and as His greatest treasure. And this is how the Holy Spirit is instructing you and me to respond to our difficulty in our dry seasons, that we would praise God for who He is, and that we would recognize and find our greatest treasure in Him. And we've got these this seeming side note of verses three and four, where simply David writes, he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David simply writes that the people of God around us can fuel our delight and support us but those who run after other gods will only lead us astray. And so if I could just put it simply, make sure that the loudest voices in your life are pointing you towards God, not away from Him. The reality is these dry seasons that we face and experience are typically the result of a lack of worship in our lives. Is God the greatest treasure in your life? Can we be honest with God this morning? Like a close friend, can we just tell him exactly where we are? Can I ask you a question? In your off hours, do you turn to everything but God? That would be a question that we're faced with in Psalm 16. See, God is the greatest treasure. The, 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 the reality, though, is these dry seasons that we experience, even as believers, they are the result of that lack of worship, and they typically come when, from after moments and, and moments of us going after these other little treasures and these other little pleasures in our life. The problem is every single one of these other little treasures and pleasures, they buckle under the weight of our endless thirst for something greater for something greater than just another weekend by the lake. And it's dangerous because the results don't happen all at once, it's a slow fade. But in the end, all these little pleasures will only leave us empty, wanting more. See, all of these other treasures in the world today, they're all finite, they're expendable, they're consumable, only God is infinite. And that's why only God can satisfy your heart. And this is so crucial for us to to get. This is why David praises God as the greatest treasure and acknowledges him as the source of every good in his life. This means that we can worship God for all of the things that we, we have. We can worship God for the weekend at the lake. We just need to be careful that we do not glorify those things rather than the one who gave them. That's what real worship looks like. It involves prayer that is raw and real and praise that exalts God for who he is. And in verses five and six, we see David begin to move from, from just praising God to, to responding with our third essential element of worship, which is thankfulness. Look in verse five. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot, he says. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verse seven, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Thankfulness is our response to the provision and actions of God. If praise is the exaltation of who he is and what he's done, thankfulness is our response. And David begins to thank God for who he is and what he's given him. After all, it's what God deserves, right? As the greatest treasure in the world, as our sovereign Lord, he deserves our thankfulness. And I want you to notice how David praises God and thanks God for where he has brought him from and where he has brought him to. Look in verse six, very interesting statement. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, he says. And when he talks about these lines, he's talking about these these boundary lines all around David's life, where God has brought him and what he's brought into David's life. And he's able to look back from the line and trace the line from where God has brought him from. That little shepherd boy in the fields protecting his sheep, his father's sheep from lions and wolves to, 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 that, to that young man who faced down the Goliath, the, the, the giant Goliath whom the rest of Israel was afraid of. And God gave David the victory because of his faith up until this moment where now he's the king over all Israel. And he traces that line from where God has brought him and he sees those boundary lines for where he has landed. And he can say, you have brought me to pleasant places. And so he thanks God for where he has brought him and what he has promised. Look at these words in in, in verses um, five and six. My portion, my cup, my lot, the lines, the, the, the pleasant places, the beautiful inheritance. All of this is language of satisfaction. See, David is satisfied with God and he's satisfied in God. So much so that in verse seven, he he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. He thanks God and don't miss this. Remember where we started in verse one. Preserve me, oh God, help. How many of our prayers start that way? Can we be honest? Help me, God. I don't know what to do, I don't know, I don't know what to choose, I don't know what to say. I, help! And, and in this moment, whatever emotional place that he is in, whatever situation he's surrounded by, all of a sudden in that moment, he prays God with this very real and raw prayer. And then he begins to praise God. And you watch and you, you see this, this pathway go as he praises God for his sovereignty. You are my Lord. And he praises God as the greatest treasure. I have no good apart from you. You are my portion, my cup. You hold my lot. And so he starts here, and all of a sudden we come to verse 8. He starts in this low point. And then we read verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken the uncertainty of verse one and the confidence of verse eight, do you see that? The confidence in verse eight, the delight in God, which we're gonna see in verse nine. See, when our prayers and our praise leads to thankfulness, the result is confidence and delight in God. That process of worship that David went through starting with that raw and real prayer, going through that praise and that exaltation of God and that thankfulness has now landed him in a place of confidence where now worship has calmed his fears. Worshiping God has centered his thoughts and has glorified God. And I've watched this play out in my life time and time again when I faced you know, um, my struggles with depression and, and where God has, has led me and the decisions that I've had to make and the things that I've had to do and choose and, and, and things that have happened to me, I've, I've watched every time in those moments where, where I'm, I'm overwhelmed, I turn to God in worship and every single time, he has calmed my heart and centered my thoughts on who he is and what he's done and what he's promised and that glorifies God. And I don't know what it looks like for you. For me, it's definitely been, you know, reading through the book of Psalms. Psalms has such a huge place in my heart, but it's also dialing in Spotify in my car and jamming out to some worship song or busting out my guitar when I'm alone or just this past week, just randomly finding John MacArthur's hymnal in my hand and singing, he will hold me fast. Worship calms the heart. And so David's worship, despite his circumstances, leads him to confidence that we see in verse eight. I shall not be shaken, because God is at his right hand, and then delight in verse nine. Read verse nine with me. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. Why? Why the confidence? Why the delight in God? Because of truth our fourth essential element of worship, truth. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You cannot have worship without truth. Jesus tells us this in John chapter four, verse 23, where he says that true worshipers will worship God in spirit and what, church? Truth. What truth, you ask? Not just the truth that, that God is sovereign in verse two or that God is the greatest treasure in verse five, but that through Jesus Christ, God makes known the path of life in verse 11. That in in God's presence, there is fullness of joy for those who are in Christ. That at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore in Christ. You're like, hey, where do you get Jesus in this song? Well, Both Peter and Paul preach sermons from Psalm chapter 16. And and even in Peter's most famous sermon on the day of Pentecost, when he preaches from Psalm 16, those very same three verses we just read, he preaches that they are about the resurrection of the Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we see the result over 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I want you to see this. Acts chapter 2, verse, I'm going to start in verse 23. Peter is in this moment where the Holy Spirit has just descended and thousands of Jews in the marketplace have surrounded this little building that he's preaching on top of. And they're like, what in the world's going on as the Holy Spirit has landed, y'all? And they're asking, what's going on? And Peter begins to preach about Jesus. And he says in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's sovereignty. This Jesus you crucified and killed by by the hands of, of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by. For David says concerning who? Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he has both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he would not be abandoned to Hades nor his flesh see corruption. Instead, this Jesus God has raised up and we are all witnesses of this. Wow. David, in the midst of his darkest moment, was given a glimpse of the resurrection of the Messiah and he didn't even know his name. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, and we know his name. See, we have the fuller picture. We can look back, and in this moment, we can see Christ all over this psalm. And so what we need to hear is that delight is the fuel of worship, delight in Christ. And no matter what you're going through today, hear this, you might've come in here on the top of some mountain praising and worshiping God, and we're glad you're here. Or you might've come in here in the middle of a difficult time in your life where you feel empty and maybe the deepest point in your life you've ever been. You thought you came in on a whim, but you're not here by mistake. God has something he wants to say to all of us, no matter where we find ourselves today, that we can come to him with the same honesty and raw emotion that we hear from David as he opens Psalm 16, that we can praise God for who he is, regardless of what we are facing, and we can thank God that he has promised to be present, to extend his power, to redeem everything we walk through in this life. How? Because in Christ, God offers us life, life. Look back in Psalm 16. Where is Jesus in the Psalm? Let's find out. First one, Jesus is our refuge. Jesus is our Lord, the sovereign God. Jesus is is our greatest treasure. There is no good apart from him. Jesus is the chosen portion that God offers us as believers. He is our cup that overflows with joy and blessing. He is our lot, he holds our lot. That means nothing that you experience in life falls outside of Jesus's control or knowledge. He cares for you right where you are. Jesus holds our lot, and Jesus gives us counsel He is at our right hand, and because Jesus is with us, we cannot be shaken. He will not abandon us, because God did not abandon Christ. And because Christ came back from the grave, you and I can experience life forever in His name. In Christ, I'm gonna ask the the worship team to come on up and our staff to come down front because we're gonna move into a time of response to this very honest prayer of of David right here. There could be no more fitting response to a message about worship, to watching how, how David, regardless of where he is, begins to praise God for who God is because God doesn't change and he's faithful then there is no better response than for us to worship God with that real, raw, honest prayer and that praise and thankfulness. Delight is the fuel of our worship. Delight in Christ. Would you stand with me? And we're gonna worship here in just one more moment, but I need to read you this passage from Romans 8 because these promises are made available to us in Christ. Where in Romans 8, Peter writes. There, Paul writes, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who are in Christ. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who is himself, Jesus Christ, interceding for us and who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You and I dwell secure this morning because of Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that's why our team's down front. Do not not leave this moment without without asking how you can have a relationship with Jesus, how you can experience life in his name. We would love to pray for you. If you'd love to join our, our church here at CFBC, come talk to one of our team. If you need prayer, don't hesitate. But can we respond how the Holy Spirit leads? Let's worship God together.